Before we start the show, just a word from our sponsor, Undeniable Press. For all your screen printing needs, located in the Corktown District of Detroit, Michigan. If you ever need any t-shirts or any other little promo accessories, posters, or whatnot printed up for you, go to Undeniable Press. They're located, once again, in the Corktown District of Detroit, Michigan. And you can uh, reach them at facebook.com slash undeniablepressdetroit. And those same guys who do Undeniable Press also have a clothing line called 20 by 20 Apparel. It's very much wrestling themed. All sorts of nostalgic themes in regards to the history of wrestling. And you can go check out their clothing line at 20x20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20, apparel.com. Now let's start the show. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bummy, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yelling what it goes. You see me shining like a suit on puffy. You know my grind and shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kicks, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast, the podcast about music, pro wrestling, and MMA. I'm your host, Kay Fresh. We have a great show for you, like always. Before we get into the show, just definitely want to remind you how you can support the podcast. You can always go to freshesthepodcast.com and share any of the links on the website on any of your social media. That would help. And also, you can click on the link that says support the podcast, and there's a PayPal link that you can donate to. And there's also a Amazon link that you can use anytime you want to make some purchases on Amazon. It doesn't change anything on your end, but it does throw a little commission our way. You can also follow Fresh of the Word on Instagram and Twitter at Fresh of the Word One. That's Fresh of the Word, then the number one. And on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Fresh is the Podcast. Give us a like on there and share anything you want on Facebook. That'd be great. You can also subscribe to Fresh is the Word on a slew of platforms right now. Mixcloud, SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes, Stitcher. All right, that's all of them. I should all write them down. <laughs> But anyways, you can go to any of those platforms and just search Fresh of the Word, and it'll come up. You can subscribe to it. That's great. And if you want to, give us a rating on there, preferably five stars. Leave a comment. That would be totally, totally awesome. Okay, let's get to the show for today. I am joined by a couple of people. Spike Slauson, the lead singer of the really fun cover band, Me First and the Gimme Gimmies, along with Audra Angeli Morse. She was the promoter of Incredibly Strange Wrestling that started back in 1995 in San Francisco, went all the way into the uh, early to mid-2000s. 
Incredibly Strange Wrestling was a wrestling promotion that mixed the Lucha Libre style of wrestling with all these crazy controversial gimmicks, along with having live bands at the shows. And they also toured with festivals like Warp Tour, Deconstruction Tour, Lollapalooza, and a slew of others. So we get into talking about all the craziness that went on with this promotion. And and there's a really poignant part of this interview where Spike and Audra sort of talk about like how like San Francisco like transformed into this sort of tech hub and how people were coming to San Francisco to quote unquote save San Francisco, but it really didn't need to be saved. So we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of sort of like the the cultural economics of San Francisco is really, really fascinating. And then like always, afterwards, I'll be joined by my co-host V Styles, and we'll talk about, you know, what's going on in the world of pro wrestling and MMA. So let's get to the interview with Spike and Audra. You know, when you kind of look back to uh, Incredibly Strange Wrestling, it was such a cool idea. Uh, it was, you know, wrestling based off Lucha Libre, and then infused all these different sort of, uh, you know, music, rock bands of all types, you know, it was a, it's kind of a crazy thing, you know, how did it all, how did that all get started? Um, well, it's, it started with my friend Brett and I, and we were both into music in San Francisco, and we both were into comic books, and I learned about Lucha Libre from Love and Rockets comic books, basically, Okay. and that's kind of what made me seek it out, and I would make trips down to, uh, you know, like Tijuana and stuff because we lived in California and I saw the masks and I collected them. And then I met this guy who did the same thing. And it was, I mean, we we're literally the only two people in San Francisco, I'm pretty sure. And, um, and we had the idea. We also knew Johnny Legend. I don't know if you're familiar with Johnny Legend. Yeah. But uh, we knew Johnny Legend from music because I used to book this club and I booked his band. And so we contacted him and had the idea. I was booking a couple clubs at the time in the city. He worked as security in the city. And we thought, let's do our own wrestling show just for fun. And we contacted Johnny to have his band play and maybe bring up some, you know, if he knew some guys who were wrestlers. And the very first show, I convinced the owner of the club to let me do this after-hours wrestling with bands it was $2. It started at 2 a.m., and we ended up bringing in a ton of people. We were we wrestled, and we didn't even know what we were doing. <laughs> we didn't have – we made a wrestling ring out of this oak wood staging and a uh, packing blanket, and then we basically just beat the shit out of each other, and we all woke up the next day with huge bruises and hematomas, and we're like, that was the best thing ever. We have to do this again. <laughs> That's awesome. After that happened, you know, what was sort of the result of that? You know, what happened, um, you know, the weeks or months prior, um, after that? Um, it was actually kind of crazy. We, um, everybody really loved it, and they were kind of crazy for it. And then we, the owner of the club and the other booker, the I was her assistant, they were both like, we should do this. We should make an actual show. And we made an actual show of it, you know, a couple weeks later at the Transmission Theater and um, we're having regular hours and people got to actually drink and hang out and stuff. And, and then um, 
through the booking agent the, who I worked for and some friend of hers, I don't remember who it was, that was that came to the show just because they came to see this weird thing that was going on. Um, they got us on Lollapalooza that year in 1995. Okay. And within a month or, or so of starting this show, we were we did the whole West Coast leg of Lollapalooza in 1995. Great. Sort of like the um, the music aspect of uh, this show, you know, how did you go about uh, getting bands to uh, play this weird wrestling uh, show, you know, and especially you have a band like the Gimmies who are, who seem like were like one of the main attractions um, on a regular basis for this. You know, how did you go about, you know, selecting these bands to be a part of the show? Um, I, I just, I literally, you know, because I had been booking the, a couple clubs and stuff and had been working in music and music was so important to me. I just picked the bands that I really liked and that I thought were fun because the wrestling. And I also like, so the way that we did the show was that we'd start with an opening band and then there'd be a 30 minute set of wrestling and then there'd be another band and then another set of wrestling and then the headliner. Um, So I also, besides what I liked, I wanted, I had to pick bands that, like kept the momentum going, you know, the worst thing was if you put a band on that was kind of mellow after that first set of wrestling, when everyone was all hyped up, the band would just be destroyed. So it was a combo of all the music that we liked. um, Cause we had the Bomboras and the mummies and, you know, Mike Watt and the dwarves and all these bands that we listened to and we were friends with. And that's how we started was we just convinced our friends bands including the gimmies, um, will you please play this crazy show that we're doing? We promise that, you know, it'll be fun, we'll get you drunk, it'll be a party. And that's how we got them to do it. And then as the show got bigger and bigger, then bands started chasing me down to try and get on the show kind of a thing. Um, yeah, and the gimmies were one of many crazy bands that decided to get in on the action. Hey, Spike, uh, you know, what was your thoughts about first when you first got involved playing these shows? That's the first I had ever heard of uh, Lucha Libre Wrestling. <laughs> I didn't know about it. Uh, I mean, I had read uh, Love and Rockets comic books before, yeah. but I didn't know anything about it or why they wore masks or anything like that. And then, uh, uh, yeah, I mean... I was still helping her set up the ring back before, like, before the gimmies were anything. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was fun. Of course we wanted to play it. It's it like- was San Francisco Street Theater. <laughs> as well as being, like, an homage to, to Mexican wrestling, it was, uh, like, a weird form of San Francisco Street Theater that, that like, it got, it got topical, um, they would always, they, 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 it was really provocative. It would, uh, um, it was really good at pushing people's buttons, especially here in the city, in, in San Francisco, which at that time was a different city to be living in. It, it was, it was a lot more fun. And Spike used to come to the shows too, long before he ever played them. Yeah. Right. He had, no. <laughs> he had, a, he had a crush on one of the wrestlers. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Spike, you mentioned, uh, 
you know, how San Francisco was um, ar- around that time when it all started. You know, can, can I talk about that more? You know, how did these shows sort of fit into the culture of uh, San Francisco? And how was San Francisco just as a whole in that time? Um, it was kind of a wilder city. Like, people still... Huh, it, it's, it's tough to describe without, like bringing up, like, beatnik or hippie culture, but it, it wasn't, it didn't, like, it brought waves of people Yeah. Through, throughout. It's brought waves of people since the gold rush, and then uh, waves of, of gay people in the 60s and 70s, waves of hippies and beatniks, and then waves of, like, punks and, and musicians and artists and stuff, all bringing kind of a different sort of character to the city. Um and more recently, it brought waves of basic suburban people, which which is is, is why it's it's changed so much recently. And it didn't it, it no matter how you feel about hippies, you know it it, it they, they definitely brought sort of a wild energy to the city. Yeah. Um. And recently, the the, the latest swarm has just brought like prohibitive prices. And this weird sort of like suburban middle class mediocrity it, to it. it uh, San Francisco. I grew up in San Francisco. I'm born and raised here, yeah. and it's always been like this city. Anything went. You know what I mean? Anything goes. And it was all about not just acceptance because not everything was accepted, but it wasn't this PC bullshit. And it was like, okay, I'm not into what you're into, but you're allowed to do it. And it's, you know, if it's crazy, it's San Francisco. And the new wave is very basic, as Spike put it. And they've got, you know, it's... Easily you know, offended. They're easily offended. And I I think that Incredibly Strange Wrestling, I'm, you know, if I started doing ISW again now in San Francisco, it gained enough popularity that I'm sure that it would be still a successful show. But if I had to start it again here i'm not sure that it would have ever gotten where it it did get to because the people here now i mean we tackled a lot of topical stuff and a lot of really uh fiery things and people laughed at it because they had a sense of humor and they got it that it was parody and now people are just so worried about you know gender neutral bathrooms and fragrance free uh club shows and not offending anyone and it being like a safe space and instead of just having a good time and they've brought these like people complain about sound now on the street and their neighbors in san francisco when that would just never happen before like they want it quiet but they move to a city if that makes sense (laughs) right 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 with um with the gimme gimme's uh this is a band that's you know predominantly does covers and ha- has members that, that from all these other bands like NoFX and you have Chris who is with the Foo Fighters now and it, they are all these uh, mus- uh, musicians from different walks of life. Um, you said Spike that you know even when uh, you first started coming to these shows you still weren't a part of this band, but like the Gimmies are kind of like sort of like another form of that traveling circus how wrestling is, you know, was there any influence being a part of this show that you took into this gimme gimme project? 
Yeah. Um, a lot of the bands and the music that she curated for these events um, were bands that I had not heard previously. Um, and certainly, I mean, even apart from the wrestling, which was, was this sort of amazing, controversial, uh, provocative, like, street theater, there were also bands like the Mummies, who during their musical sets, in between uh, the wrestling bouts, uh, they had their own sense of, of, of theater and visual presentation. And uh, that, that changed my outlook on what live music should be, certainly. Because I grew up in Pittsburgh, where I think a lot of people felt all you had to do was dress up like you were in the exploited and then sort of play a set while you were staring down at your shoes <laughs> and that you were kind of like, then that was, was supposed to be live entertainment. And now I don't think that way anymore. Right. Right. The, a lot of, like you were saying before, a lot of the themes that uh, were tackled uh, at incredibly strange, you know, covered a lot of issues stuff that was kind of controversial a lot of the gimmicks were really outlandish you know what were some of the ones that stick out in your mind what were some of the like the themes that really stuck out in your mind um that you were able to tackle during those times god we we did so i mean if it happened in the news when we were doing shows on a weekly basis at that point in time and then like when we did tours um, you know, we did the Warp Tour in 2001. We did the entire tour. And anything that came up that day in the news, we'd find a way to put it into the set that afternoon. <laughs> um, they had Scientologists, wrestlers. We had, oh, yeah, we had a boy band called 69 Degrees that were Scientologists. And so we, that was kind of crazy. I had, um, on 52 Warp Tour shows, each and every day, no matter where we were, um, a couple of representatives from the local Church of Scientology came out and tried to find me. They knew exactly who I was and what I looked like, and they asked everybody where they could find me. And then occasionally they would corner me and try and either get me to stop parodying the church or um, try and make me become a member. And it's all because before I left, they used the uh, Dianetics. Yeah. Um, as the, so they would usually start, something would start, but usually the, the, the match would start by, um, them taking a copy of Dianetics and hitting their opponent over the head with it. <laughs> and, uh, and then they would end up tearing the book. And so, you know, when we did one show every month or something, I would just go to Barnes and Nobles and buy a, a copy, but any bookstore only ever had one copy. When we were going out on tour, I needed, you know, like 40 copies and, Nobody had that, so I had to go and order them from the local Church of Scientology, and I went down there to go and pick them up, and luckily I brought a friend with me because it was the creepiest thing ever. We came in, they made us take our shoes off to walk in the door, and then took them from us, and then put us in a room and kept us there for over an hour and wanted to do all this crazy shit, wanted to know everything about the show, and I totally was like, oh, this is a 
theater performance thing. I didn't say anything about wrestling or anything. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, we're huge fans of Tom Cruise, and um, he's a part of our show, and he's a Scientologist. So, And I made up this whole bullshit lie to get the hell out of there. <laughs> and then they followed me, and then they saw it, because ISW was getting so much press at the time. They figured it out, and then these creepy people came to every single show. It was nuts. I still get weird um, newsletter things from them every once in a while, and through that, their um, Elron Hubbard's grandson contacted me because he was really into wrestling, and he told me the craziest stories about Scientology. He and his sister were kidnapped from their mother by the church, and then he... I don't even know if he's still around anymore, but at that time, he was couch surfing and running from the church, and he was a part of our wrestling show. He did a couple of things with us, and then um, had to move on because they literally would show up at his friend's houses as soon as they figured out where he was to come find him, and he'd have to move to the next couch. That's crazy, man. That's crazy, man. <laughs> For crazy. I, I think that the Scientologist and the Oi Boy were two of my favorite characters because they really like, I mean, I don't know, everything about my personality and everything about wrestling is to push people's buttons and upset them. And those two really got it going on. I mean, the Oi Boy, just, we upset everybody. It was great. Was and he was a, the Oi Boy was a Nazi skinhead <laughs> who we always, we always pitted him against um, like a Mexican wrestler and um, he almost always lost, and the crowd would go nuts. And he always carried around a copy of Mein Kampf, which he would end up, he would end up getting beaten up with his own copy of Mein Kampf. Um, but there were places like we were in Boise, Idaho, and the skinheads there really believed it and went crazy. And security had to like they were trying to get in the ring. And I I was announcing that day too, and I I had to stop the show and go, hey. Skinhead, you do know that this is wrestling, right? It's not for real. Kayfabe. All right. Kayfabe was alive and well that day. Exactly. <laughs> during during all that time, was, um, you know, what was sort of, you know, when it comes to topics and things that you want to tackle, you know, where was the line? Was there any times when you felt like you might have crossed the line a little bit? Or was there any ideas that you had to shoot down before you you even did them. Um, there was probably a couple um, offhand. I don't remember, but um, I mean, we really pushed some crazy lines. We did. Um, uh, yeah, we we pushed, we pushed every line. I mean, that was the point. I mean, I think that that is what. I mean, I'm, you know, art and performance art and music and all these things. My biggest problem now with so much of the new stuff that's out there is like everybody's so worried and people are trying to censor art all the time now right. and art is art no matter what whether it's a painting or a song or some stage performance like it's supposed to evoke emotion whether you're happy sad angry whatever it is and if it doesn't evoke any emotion in the viewer then you're not doing it right then it's no good and like People, you know, the idea was to get people fired up, get them into the show, get them to be a part of it, get them to root for one of the characters, to hate the other one. You know what I mean? 
So anything with people emotionally engaged and um, our storylines, I mean, with the Oi Boy, we did these, um, I made a movie and we did these commercials for the movie and he did a laundry detergent commercial. It was white powder, laundry detergent. I mean, we we pushed every button and um, it was, I, I, I would still do it. I still don't hold back because it, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to. I mean, especially now with our president, like people should be doing. My biggest problem with Kathy Griffin is that she apologized. Right. Like shit. Like hell yeah. It's just, don't apologize. I mean, I mean, fucking uh, Ted Nugent did the same thing during the Obama thing, and he got invited to the Oval Office. Shit. Yeah, of course, of course. And don't apologize for your art ever. Right. 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 So um. So Spike, during this you know whole time that you're witnessing this crazy wrestling event going on, what were some of your best memories, um, you know, playing these shows? Uh, I mean, just the energy of the crowd. By the time you got to play a live set of music, you know, like if it's just music, then you kind of got to work a lot harder if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, like when you get people that emotionally engaged, even if they understand the irony, even if they're aware of the irony, even like the, the, you know, they, they still managed to, to engage emotionally with, with what's going on. And they still managed to, to want one character to win and one to lose. So they, they get really worked up and, then you just get to go play a set of music in front of them rather than having to, to do that work yourself. That may sound lazy, but it's, it's actually, you know, it, 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 it brought the show up. It, it brought these people to this sort of fever pitch before you even got in front of them, which, which was great. Right. That was, that's my best memory of it. And then just sort of watching it. And then now in hindsight, um, I think of that San Francisco, and, and I get kind of nostalgic for it. Because I still, you know, I don't want to leave here. It's a beautiful city. But um, it would be really nice if that San Francisco came back with, like, you know, almost affordable rent, people that could take a joke. Like, it seems like that whole uh, cross-section of people who understood how to have unselfconscious fun and why it was good. They all moved to Los Angeles over the last like 10 or 15 years. And then we're kind of left with, with these sort of like basic techie types. And then um, all these other people that seem to believe that like, like they reserve the right to be offended by literally everything they hear. And it, it, it doesn't make for like, to me, I forget what the quote is, like art, good art is supposed to agitate the comfortable and comfort the agitated. They're, like the, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quote. Right. But what it seems like is out on the coast and by the big bodies of water where all the liberal lives, and I happen to be left of center too, like politically speaking, but that's not what I mean. It, it seems like those are the sort of comfortable people now. And they don't like being agitated any more than, than like – you know, than the right wing squares did back in the 60s and 70s. Right. Which I think is all the more important to fuck with them now. <laughs> right. 
The new San Franciscans, they're big expressing themselves as like what pattern yoga pants they're going to put on to wow their Bikram class that day. <laughs> right. I'm not even kidding. Like they think it's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I just. Well, and then the other thing is, is that now, and this, this is a little bit like maybe more of a, uh, a darker take on what's happened ever since is that you see a lot of people that you used to see at shows, like things have been really stratified economically now. So like you see a lot of the people that you used to see at all kinds of different shows or that you used to just see on the street. And even if you didn't know, know them, you knew they were kind of a compatriot, like, you know, that they, they, they listened to the same type of music, that they were into underground music and culture. You see those people on the street now. Like some, some of them, you see them living rough Yeah, and maybe they're not people that you used to know or that you used to see, but, but they're those same type of person. They're the same type and they can't hack it here anymore. Right. The only people that can hack it economically are necessarily, uh, mediocre middle-class people with suburban sensibilities or people that were locked in already. Yeah. Or people with rent control and everybody else, it seems like is, you know, they're on the streets. Like it's, it's, it's crazy how things have been stratified here. And so then that's like this weird, almost subconscious fire that's lit under your ass. Like, man, I better get a fourth job and start dealing Coke on the side. So you don't see a lot of the people who, during that time period, say 20 years ago, would have been creating things or experimenting. A lot of those people now are in the service industry or, you know, writing code. Right, right. Yeah, like, um, cause I'm here in Detroit, and over the past few years, they've done this whole revitalization of downtown. We're getting new stadiums. It looks all nice. I just saw Corridor. We were just there. Uh, like not like a couple months ago or a month ago even. Right. And I grew up going to Detroit back in the seventies. My grandmother lived at, uh, at or near Sussex and six mile. I don't remember exactly where it was, Okay. but I couldn't believe it. Like right over there by like the magic stick. Yeah. Like they think that $800 watches are going to save the cast corridor. And you know what the horrible thing is, is they may be right. Depending on like your definition of saving. Right, exactly. We're we're getting a lot of that, which you saw here in Detroit downtown, but we don't know what it's going to do for the rest of the city, which is still, uh, you know, struggling. It's still the people that have been here for generations. And then how do you how do those people fit into the city as sort of that revitalization or whatever they're doing to quote unquote save the city as that expands <laughs> past that downtown area? You know, there's so many like there's so many unknowns right now with the city of Detroit and how this will affect the people that have already been here that, you know, it, it's 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 kind of a crazy and scary thing when it comes to the city and the culture. Yeah, I grew up in in Pittsburgh, um, which was also uh, had some similar issues as Detroit. And it's it's kind of the same thing. Like, I hate to say it. 
because it's really tempting to say that Pittsburgh has turned into the city that I would have liked to have grown up in. You know, because it's, it's hip now. Yeah. There's good food. There's, like, live music venues. There's, like, cheap spaces for people to experiment. People aren't beating up scrawny little musicians anymore. <laughs> <with you. laughs> but, like, the, the human cost for it to get to that point, like, nobody talks about the foreclosures that got it there. Or very few people are talking about the foreclosures that got it there. And I think with Detroit, it's even more of a dire prospect because they can't administer to, to the geographic area that encompasses Detroit, right? Right. Like, they can't afford to do it. So the, the only answers that they can talk about are, are monstrous. Even if they're the only practically tenable solutions, they're monstrous. And like, I, they're just, I, don't, I don't think there's room for the people that really suffered through it. And I don't think a lot of people, like, I know it. Like, I, would, I know if I were to move into East Oakland, like, okay, so like, if the situation were reversed, if I had been living in East Oakland for three generations and suffering through and struggling through what that neighborhood was like for those generations or my parents or grandparents had, I wouldn't want to see my face coming in because I know what it means. But I think a lot of people are not self-aware enough to understand, like, hey, man, like, you're the front lines, so just be careful and, like, try to be an ally to the people who have lived here. Through. Because all I ever hear people talking about is about the, like, especially in San Francisco, is about the artists that struggled in the Mission District. Like, fuck them, man. You know what I mean? Like, what about the people who had been there for generations before that? Right. You know? I don't know. It's, it's tough. It, it doesn't matter either what city. I mean, obviously Detroit and Pittsburgh have had their issues and financial issues and all this, but San Francisco never had that. San Francisco has never been, it's never been struggling. It's never been a poor city. It's always done well because it's such a huge, um, well, it's a big port city and it's also a big tourist city. Yes. But still these people that have moved here, I hear it all the time. They have this attitude of, oh, well, we're saving San Francisco. And I'm like, from what? <laughs> like, it was fine. The hell are you saving it from? And we... From unselfconscious fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I, my family grew up in this neighborhood on the east side of town that was mixed industrial and residential. And um, it's always been a really cool neighborhood. I love it because it's right by the water and there's like all these old shipyards, but still really cool old architecture and stuff too. And and it was this sort of um, untapped area. And um, now it has become the most up and coming, most expensive, most coveted neighborhood in all of San Francisco. And it's just these assholes that are taking over it. And I've actually had people tell me that I should walk around my neighborhood and see what's going on now, not knowing that my family has been here since just after the 1906 earthquake. And I know exactly what's going on in this neighborhood and I hate it. And it's like they act like they're saving this neighborhood because they're going to put in the new Warrior Stadium. I'm like, you're ruining the neighborhood by putting in the new Warrior Stadium. Right, yeah. There's there's always that savior complex that people have in this country about yeah. going into a uh, – I mean, that's something that Detroit's always kind of had also here and there. You know, we've had our times when we're just been – Detroit's been completely ignored. But then you had, you had times when – 
way back in the way back, just probably maybe a hundred years. I forget the actual date is when they tore they that they tore up the Black Bottom neighborhood to put in a freeway, and they just destroyed a whole uh, deep, enriched, cultured black neighborhood just to put in an expressway. And the express the part of the expressway that they uh, that they tore up really isn't that express of a way to, to be funny about it it's it's a little part that actually just connects you to the downtown so yeah there's always these you know times when you're going through these eras where you have these people that come in and have these savior complexes yeah it's they're saving us they're saving us from having open space it's all going to be apartments and lots um, I think it's that, like, I think there's, like, a new baby boom, a more recent baby boom, and it's what happened in the suburbs, is that people, I guess they called it white flight, you yeah. know, back in, the, back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Um, it's they didn't want to pay for city problems, urban problems, that, that's a euphemism, but they didn't want to pay for, for, quote, unquote, urban problems, so they left, uh the big cities and raised families and started breeding out in these suburbs. And I think sometime over the last generation or two, the people out in the suburbs realized that the suburbs suck. So they did all this breeding and all these, these, all this, um, all these people that were bred uh, realized that, that their surroundings were horrible, unsustainable. Like you had to have a car you know what I mean? Like, like if people, when, when, you know, when people get drug habits out in the suburbs, yeah, it's like a one ticket. Right. Whereas in the city, that there are all these different alternatives and all these, you know, all these things that can distract you from 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 your bad habits, and you can sort of create new ones. And so people came into the city, and there's just not enough room for them. Like it, it, it there's just there are too many of them. It's like an invasion. Like, I guess in, in Detroit, it would be like Oakland County, you know? Yeah. I, so I guess you could have a really nice life there if right. you are a certain kind of person, but most people aren't like that. Like, we have the internet now, so we can see how great the city is or how much quote-unquote potential there is in Detroit. So they, they move in, and I, I think a lot of them – you know, like, ignorance is no excuse, but I think a lot of them are ignorant. I don't think the people on the developing and real estate end are, but I think a lot of the people that are moving into the city are. They're like, man, like, this is the one place uh, where I'm going to be around other people, where I can interact, like, in an urban environment, and, man, I only got to pay $500 down on a house, you know? Right, And, right. and they, don't, they, don't, they don't have the, the frame of reference even think about the, the the people that were foreclosed on to create that kind of situation for them. Yeah, I always kind of like think about the like when those sort of people they almost have a romantic idea of the city. Like they only think about that side of things. They they romanticize. Oh, I'm being in the city and I'm gonna be so cultural and everything, and don't really you know realize the deeper meaning about a lot of the shit. They, like, here and in Los Angeles, because uh, since the San Franciscans moved down to Los Angeles, now, now Los Angeles is prohibitively expensive. 
It's also way cooler now. And fancy, yeah, it's, it's way cooler than it used to be. <laughs> and uh, no, for sure. But like, but like, it's all. It, it, it seems like when the people move in to the mission, where it's hard to find a one-bedroom apartment under five thousand dollars in what used to be the Mexican barrio, where where artists and musicians would live at some personal risk. Uh, to do their shit and not have to worry about rent so much so they could concentrate and reflect and focus on what they were, what they were driven by mainly, which is their art. Yeah. Um, now it seems as though like the people that move in, they almost want somebody taking a shit on the street or shooting up or fighting as like window dressing. And it's as if they'll pay, you know, extra for it. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. I'll pay five thousand dollars a month for for this this shitty one bedroom apartment in this loft that they slapped up uh, on top of some landfill six months ago. But could you know? I'll pay a little extra if you can include a guy sleeping on the street, and I could you know if you could include the stench of urine, <laughs> I'll pay extra for that too. Like, it almost seems like that. Like, people sort of expect, it seems as though they expect less. And I don't know, if they expected more, That I mean, if they actually tried to fix these problems, then that's like the last nail in the coffin. Right. So, like, I guess I guess I should thank goodness for small favors, that they're not, you know, trying to completely change these neighborhoods that they move into. But at the same time, it's like they, they, they're divorcing the whole idea, the whole notion of like cost and uh, as it relates to value, like it's, it's completely, it's gone now. And they don't just, just destroy it for themselves because if they had just destroyed it for themselves, like, you know, who cares? Yeah. I'd get a bowl of popcorn and watch them get hustled, you know, and, until they, they're in a barrel with suspenders. But they just destroy it for everybody else too. Everybody that lives in, in, in these cities. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. But San Francisco at that time, years and years ago, twenty years ago, it, it, it wasn't like that. It like there was a spirit to it. And and it was a, it wasn't just a San Francisco, it wasn't a native spirit, it was a spirit that people brought. Like, people knew they wanted to come here, and then they knew they wanted to be changed by the city of San Francisco. You know? And now they want to come here and change it. Yeah. According right. to their... Like, this was their this was their destination in mind. They weren't just, like, wandering around and wound up here. This is where they wanted to come because of what was going on here. Like, it was one of, like, back in the 70s and 80s, it was one of the best punk scenes in the country, even if it didn't have as many good bands as, like, say, Southern California did, it had a lot of great bands, some, some of the most seminal punk bands in the world. It had a ton of great there. clubs that all the bands came to play. Exactly. All it those had, L.A. bands, this was the first place that they came to play. It yeah. had a great scene, but it also had a great gay scene. It had a great art scene. It, it had a great, it's always been a food city. Like, you know, people came here because it was going on. Right, that was, always, that. that was always the sort of uh, the, what people thought about San Francisco. And for a while, that's the reason why they went to it. But then they started bringing their own ideals into it. You know, they're like, I want to go there, but I still want to be me. Yeah, 
I want to live in this really popular, uh, thriving neighborhood where there's a bunch of clubs and bars and restaurants, and then I'm going to move in, and then I'm going to complain about the sound and all the people. This, is, this, this actually happened. <laughs> in the club district of San Francisco, 11th Street, they turned an old warehouse into some of the first lofts in San Francisco, some of the first newly developed live-work lofts, and people actually – and this was like – it was two blocks of nothing but clubs and bars. So on the weekend nights, it was like, like a, it would look like a, like a, an intersection in Tokyo where you see all the people walking on top of each other. Basically, yes. It was like that every weekend night because everyone just came to this one district and they would go club hopping in all these different clubs in this like two block radius. And um, then this building, these people moved in and started complaining about sound. There were too many people on the street. There were cigarette butts. There was trash on a Saturday night. I'm like, why in the hell would you move in next to a fire department if you didn't like the sound of fire alarms? <laughs> right. You know, and and they literally they they got really expensive attorneys and started going after these clubs, and they shut the clubs down one by one. And they didn't like say, oh, you have to be shut down. They started with these noise ordinances, so every club started with having to seal up their windows, and then it was like prohibitively expensive. Uh, soundproofing that you know the corporate club could afford but the little mom and pop club that was a rock and roll club they couldn't afford to soundproof their entire place you know pull out walls and insulate them and then buy expensive sound baffles so they just closed down because they couldn't do it anymore because they could only stay open a certain amount of nights a week they couldn't they had to have the bands be quiet they had to start booking different kinds of music I mean and then you know security you had to have extra security to make sure people didn't drop their cigarette butts and that they didn't walk over to this side of the street and a small club can't afford all that extra, right. you know? And so, and they did, they, they, I mean, the neighborhood still hasn't come back from it. Right. And that's how you get people out. You start, you know, enforcing, creating, enforcing rules that the smaller people, the people that you want out won't be able to uh, abide by or afford. Yeah. The only club that survived and luckily helped, the other clubs was, um, there's a place called Slims, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Boz Skaggs is one of the owners, and it's sort of semi-corporate, you know, it's got corporate money in it and stuff, but it's still a local club that, you know, they still, we know the bookers and some of the owners, and they still walk around on the street and hang out and go to community meetings and stuff. Right. Um, and they were the only ones that had the money, and it strapped them, too, because they weren't, you know, Live Nation or anything. But um, they had they kept an attorney on retainer that kept fighting, and that's the only reason that the street has survived at all, and that there are clubs that are coming back to it now because of them. But who can afford to keep a retainer, an attorney on retainer, twenty four hours a day? I can't. <laughs> right, 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 right. At the um, you know, at the height of doing uh, incredibly strange wrestling, uh. You know, how big did this thing get? How big did this company get, you know, in regard to attendance? You know, what, you know, is there a way you were able to quantify how big this, uh, this company got? Yeah, um, well, in the Wrestling Federation world, uh, they, your, your Wrestling Federation size is determined by attendance. And because we not only did these big shows in San Francisco, but we were touring all the time, and we did a lot of festival tours and stuff, too, even though we were not bringing in, you know, 30,000 people that day because, you know, Rancid was headlining, but that attendance still went on our 
tab, as it were, um, uh, in two from 2001 to 2003 or four. Um, it was like 2000 to 2004, I think. Um, we were the second largest wrestling federation in the United States, second only to the WWF, WWE, which is insane. It's crazy. <laughs> I did a bunch of interviews. They're like, you know, somebody came to me one day in an interview, this wrestling magazine, and said, do you know that you have surpassed the WCW and you are now the second largest wrestling federation in the United States? I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I'm like, you're, oh my God, it's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy too because, I mean, so much has changed since then. Um, Vince McMahon once said he was asked about Incredibly Strange Wrestling and um, he did not have the nicest things to say about the Lucha Libre guys. And um, he said he didn't need any of that Mexican wrestling shit and talked about bunch of shit about it and was pretty goddamn racist about it and then magically he acquired Rey Mysterio Jr. <laughs> right. and then all of a sudden and, and he really picked up on it and he didn't even know what the hell it was he didn't care about Lucha Libre um, and I know that I sound like I'm floating my own boat but I'm sorry but Vince McMahon would not have done that if it wasn't for us because nobody was doing Lucha Libre uh, Southern California they were doing it like swap meets and stuff right and and it was, but it was all, you know, Mexican and Latin American culture. And I mean, I went to shows all the time down there and in Mexico, and you never even saw white faces. And for the longest time, you know, we would go down to Mexico to buy all of our merch to sell, like masks and dolls and stuff. And we were the only, and I don't, I'm not that white, I'm brown, but my partner, Brett, was this tall, skinny white guy. And like, he was the only white face in the crowd, always. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and then, like, trying to teach people around here about it, like, you know, a lot of people are like, what the hell is this? But, um, yeah, the, the WCW, and, I mean, WWF didn't want to touch it until it was already, you know, popular and it was something. And Rey Mysterio used to um, wrestle for these smaller uh, federations that came through, and we would always, we, our ring, our wrestling ring, the wrestling ring that I still own, was the original Roy Shire ring. So it was the old Cow Palace ring and it was the Northern California ring. And WWF even used it for a lot of their early stuff because it was the, the ring. And right. um, everybody has wrestled in that ring. George the Animal, Hulk Hogan, yeah. Classy Freddie Blassie, like all of these people. And um, they, th we would rent it out for these, these these shows and like in San Jose, like some small arena kind of thing. And Rey Mysterio was on a couple of the shows and we got to know him. And, um, and at that time he was kind of worried. He's like, you know, thought that he could only get to a certain level in the United States. And then bam, you know, he got picked up, but he had to take his fucking mask off too, which I already I mean, we won't even get into how I am upset about that. But. Right. Cause, um, because, um, incredibly strange started in 95, but like, it was like, it wasn't until like 96, 97, 98 until WCW and ECW brought in the, uh, the Mexican, the, the Mexican guys into their company. And while, uh, you know, Rey WWE didn't bring them in until like 2000, 2001. Yeah. Rey Mysterio wasn't even in there until like after, um, after he had left WCW until after, probably until after WCW folded. And got bought yeah, out. Absolutely. So absolutely. So it was probably wasn't even until like t 2002 or 2003 when Shout Rey Mysterio went in there. But um, yeah, it was just like um, 
ECW and WCW did have uh, the Lucha Libre wrestlers, but then you had those times when, like you mentioned, Rey Mysterio, and this was that was during the whole um, uh, what's his name, uh, who's booking the shows? Uh, oh, Vince Russo era of uh, WCW when uh, they you know made uh, Rey Mysterio take off his mask, you know, and that was like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> oh, I, I went crazy. I was so pissed off. Like it's the opposite of what it's about. You know what I mean? It's the whole, the thing that makes Lucha Libre so cool. And I've, you know, I did a bunch of work. We did a lot of benefits and stuff too. We went to Mexico. I trained in Mexico um, to wrestle and stuff. And like the, the thing that made, and the reason that I was so into it and that it brought me in when I really learned about Lucha Libre, like I said, it started with Love and Rockets and the Hernandez brothers knew because they grew up with it, their culture, but it's a part of their culture. But I didn't, and I had to learn about it. But I learned that these are real-life superheroes. And who the hell wants to know the true identity of their superheroes? Right. You know what I mean? Right. And, like, these, there's, like, I don't know if you're familiar with Super Badio, but he, like, grew up in a really shitty neighborhood. He never takes his mask off to this day. He does these, he's raised millions of dollars for, um, you know, Mexico City and it's it, in education and all sorts of different things and he does all of it in his mask in his costume he leads parades he does all of this stuff and he is looked up to by all of these people and children and like it's so cool why the hell would you unmask your superhero right it's always been Plus, a part of the you culture don't get to go back to being masked the rules are you don't get to go back to being masked after you've been unmasked so you just who the fuck are you, some American white guy who just changed the rules of this culture's sport? Like, I just, I have so many problems with it. Right, right, right. I, it's, oh, my God, it makes me crazy, in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> Definitely not. I understand, but it, it was, it's very disheartening. You're like, that's part of their culture, you know, and Plus, you just don't get it. Ray Mysterio, Ray Mysterio Jr. once asked me out on a date, and I almost went out with him even though he was shorter than me, but then I saw him after the show at a Burger King, and he was didn't have his mask on. I was like, eh, I don't think I'm gonna go out with him anymore. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh, and during that time, also, um, you were the only woman that was a promoter of wrestling, and wrestling has uh, for ages been a boys' network. You know, how was that like? Oh, it was so hard. I cannot lie. Yeah, I mean, I had. The, I did. I've been doing it in music too, which has always been a boys' club. Right. Um, but wrestling was wrestling was worse. I, I mean, it was. I think back on it now, and it was it was crazy. I mean, I, I there was some crazy shit. I'm lucky. I'm very very lucky to have had a bunch of men around me that I worked with that had a lot of respect for women and that fought for me too, because. Um, they did, they went out of their way. I know that it would have been so much easier to get ISW off the ground it, just in the sense if I was a guy because they just hated that a woman was doing this. I, you know, I did the same things that anybody else was doing, but I was a bitch and, right. you know, I, it was just, it, it was tough. It was very, very tough. Right. I cannot lie. And sometimes I just like, I don't know, Spike can attest to it. I just came in and I was, you know, a wreck. I was in tears because, and it's hard to bring me to tears. It's no easy task. <laughs> like, it was just, yeah. I'm just lucky that 
I had a group of guys around me that fought for me and helped me. But it was a constant fight. It sucked. Yeah, that that was that, that was, I I could understand. And it, it still happens. It still happens in music all the time too. Oh yeah. That was never intended to be. I get it all the time. Even uh, managing the gimmies, like they just want to deal with a dude. You know what I mean? They want to deal with another guy, and somehow that guy. They all the time. I'll do something that every step of the way will be questioned. But if a guy did it, they just let it go. They never questioned it. I watched it happen all the time. Oh, definitely. It's- a lot of the people that I um, I deal with uh, in the music uh, industry, a lot of the managers, publicists, whatnot, they're all women, and they're all some of the best. They're all the best people that I've ever worked with, and the shit that they tell me that they have to deal with, and then some of the people, the other women that they work with, the stories. It's like. It's it's crazy, and I'm like, holy shit! Like, wh- why are you know? There's so many. It's such a boys' network and such a this male fragility with all these guys. I'm like, you don't need to be dicks like this. Yeah, I I had one really, really, really horrible thing almost happen to me. Um, again, I was saved by the men that I hung out with, but I upset by winning a match and being also the promoter. And all I did was my match was more like the crowd went crazier for me than they did for these guys that were sort of local guys. And I went back to the dressing room and I waited until everybody was done getting changed because I was the only girl. And I, when it cleared out, I went back to get changed and a bunch of guys came after me like eight on one when I was standing there half naked and um, nothing happened because I was screaming and yelling and my guys came and protected me. But like shit like that happened a lot. That was the worst of it. But like, they just couldn't even handle a girl getting more, you know, glory in a match even, let alone being the, the boss. That's crazy. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. But you were fighting a culture that you knew was like that. And that like, was, I mean, maybe not supposed to be like that, but was naturally kind of like that. Right. Like, I, I think I have a much bigger problem with it in so-called punk culture. You yeah. Know, if you want to call it that, it you know. Because not- punk culture claims to be so open and, you know, and forward thinking and all this, but they're just the same as, you know, they're men. Yeah, like these, these sort of like... 70s and 80s rock and roll attitudes have kind of come in and metastasized. I think when it got popular, or maybe when it got popular again, like, and I think, like, I don't think it was ever intended to be that way. Like, like when you really, like, L.A. to me is, I don't know, it's always, like, the best nonfiction is from that town for some reason uh, to me. And, like, punk culture, L.A. punk culture is no exception. And it kind of sums up what I believe happens in a lot of different scenes across the country and across the world is that, like, when the bros, and I love Black Flag, but when, when all those bros from the South Bay started coming up to, like, the, the, the punk shows in L.A., which was, was up until that point kind of a weird artsy scene, like Exine Cervenka and, and John Doe talk about it. And I guess they wrote a song about it too. How like they made 
all of the weirdo, artsy, like, originator people want to go home and not want to be involved anymore. Right. The bros. Yeah, all the bros, they kind of, like, they were there just to sort of get, like, this, this pent-up suburban aggression out, you yeah. know? Whereas before that, it was just, like, and, you know, yeah, I guess that's, like, a necessary release valve. But, man... I don't know, go play some fucking football or something or go surfing, you know, like I think for like artists, there's something, you know, or, or you know, artsy milk toast types. That's like a necessary release valve for them, too. And then like then they're left with nothing. But I think that's that's why people move laterally and stop identifying. Uh, specifically with punk culture per se and started inventing new things. Right. Right, right. Yeah, like the sort exactly. of yeah, like sort of the bro culture like kind of comes in on in all like sort of aspects of music and sort of ruins it when there's like this sort of deviation from of why these other people were here originally. And you have these other people that really don't get any of it and just wanna like get their aggression out or get drunk and get laid, but not in any sort of respectful manner. Like I see it also in the, uh, the electronic music, uh, scene now over the past five, 10 years where it went from this soup, like, like just a really deep culture of just, uh, of house music and techno and whatnot. And now you just have all these people that don't give a fuck about the, uh, the origins of it. They just want to do their drugs and woohoo, whatever, you know? Go find somebody, get laid, and and leave. Right. But the, and and I see it. You know, I book a couple clubs here in San Francisco, and you know, I book all sorts of different kinds of music. I don't just book one kind. And um, and I see you can. I mean, you. I've seen it a million times over, and I've done a lot of corporate rock stuff, and it's not my favorite. And I could make a lot more money and have benefits and all that. But I choose to still work in these smaller, you know, three to five hundred capacity clubs because it still seems, at least for me, at that level, you have less of the bro quotient and you still have people that are vested in whatever scene it is that support the scene. They don't just come, buy a ticket, have a drink, try and get laid and leave. They actually support it even when they're not there. Right. And try to nurture it and whatever kind of music it is. And when it becomes overwhelmed by the bro scene of whatever it is, the bro people, like it just, they just take from whatever scene. They don't give at all. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I've seen that way too often. So many different types of scenes, you know, and it's, it's, it's crazy. And it, and, it, and it pushes out the people that really give a fuck about things. And like you say, you kind of move, exactly. later, like kind of move laterally to something else. But it just isn't like that same vibe that you originally had. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's weird. On it happens on different levels too. In San Francisco, uh, there are a lot of uh, gay women's clubs or gay women's events um, in the city where they don't let men, and they're not just talking about straight men. They're talking about gay men too, because the second you let one or two of them in. They like it's theirs, right? They, or they think it's theirs, it's, and it's a weird that they're not bros, but, no. they're, but they're males, and they they, they, I, they feel entitled to, it, to take yeah. over 
whatever space they see. And you see it, like, fragility was the right way to put it, man. That Gamergate thing, to me, was a real eye-opener, man. Like, I know that men feel threatened by, by female agency, but I, I didn't know to, like, what level and, like, just how spiteful and hateful, you know, the, like, the thoughts that were, were uh, going around their minds were. Like, like the, the, the language that they were able to use when they knew they weren't accountable, when they weren't looking face-to-face with a woman and they were just doing it on the Internet. Yeah. But they knew that, that it would affect their intended target, you know? They just knew that they wouldn't have to, like, be accountable, be held accountable for it. I never knew, like, that, that or maybe I just never was willing to see up until that point just how hateful and virulent you know, those, those, like, the, the, those naked male emotions were. And it's all so obviously, especially when you take it uh, in the aggregate, it, it's so obviously fragility. And it's so obvious that they feel threatened. Like, who, who the, who's the fucking real snowflakes, man? That's what I would like to know. Right, 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 right. Please, I, I'd like to see you give birth. And then we'll talk about which one of us is more fragile. <laughs> right. Definitely, man. Definitely. It's great. Yeah. As we uh, sort of uh, wind down this uh, this interview, uh, you know, what are what are both of you guys doing uh, these days? You know, what what's sort of, uh, you know, your future plans for the Gimme Gimme's and Audra? Which What are you doing these days? Uh, we're, I mean, we're traveling. <laughs> as much as we can um it's 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 a weird thing um uh at the same time that we're trying to sell tickets and and shirts and and get people excited and have them let off steam at our shows we're i i at least i'm trying to do my part to to speak to the bro culture as it exists out in our crowds and, and maybe try to temper it with, with a little bit of, uh, you know, respect and, uh, inclusiveness. Right. You know, I'm just trying to do my small part. Uh, and, and then just mainly just try to entertain people because if you do it with style rather than aggression and loudness, that brings the girls up to the front, man. And then the girls coming up to the front brings the boys. And if it, when it's co-ed, it's it's just a lot more fun. I see a lot of girls in the pit too, which is which is a uh, which is which is good and fun and gratifying. Right. You also see a girl standing at the front of the stage with bouncing boobies, which <laughs> makes it way better. Oh, definitely. See, <laughs> bunch of dudes rocking out at the front of your stage, or a bunch of cute girls with boobs as they jump and sing your songs. Come on, that's the best. Um, I, I'm kind of all over the place. I, uh, I'm, um, I'm managing the gimme, so I'm putting them to work this, this year. I've been busy uh, wrangling these boys and, um, and traveling a ton with them. And uh, I, I used to do this weekly club called Stinky's Peep Show here in San Francisco. Okay. And um, I am kind of bringing that back. I've, I've been doing it over the last year or so. And in small doses here and there, like we had a, 
attempt. San Francisco trash culture. Yeah, San Francisco trash culture. It was a stinky speed show, yeah. home of the large and lovely go-go girls. But it was music and, um, like, funny peep shows, um, like raunchy, you know, still but pushing still the envelope. Saw. You saw boobs, yeah. but it, you're not meant to, like, pull it out and wax one out. If you did that, you'd actually have some girl probably beat you up. Right. But, um, but um, so I, we did it at the Burger Boogaloo last year. We had a tent and did a bunch of shows. And then I brought it back in a festival form last year. Um, which I'm not doing this year because I'm on tour too much, but I'm going to bring it back again next year. And then I'm going to try and do it more regularly, um, you know, maybe monthly kind of thing. And then um, just a lot of touring. Spike also has got Yukunt and the Revolts. And so I have to um, manage all that. And they're working on records too. And then tours will follow. So trying to keep busy, trying to pay my rent in San Francisco and trying to, no, but fuck that. Like, trying trying to... to uh... Keep it going. San Francisco is not dead. San Francisco is not what it used to be, but it's still better than... I mean, I travel all the time, and I still choose to live here because it still does have a great scene, and it still does support live music. Um, maybe it's a little different than it used to be, but it supports the arts. It supports live music. It's still a cultural town. And you can't count like that's the that's the difference. The difference today in these cities and and I guess like New York too, and these other places that have just been sort of invaded by by people with uh, with money to burn is that like you can't depend on somebody else to be the fire. You know what I mean? Like to. Right. to to provide your entertainment or your style or, or like your, your inspiration. Like you have to be the fire, you know, like that's, that's, that's the difference now. Cause, cause there's nobody, you know, there, there may not be anybody else left. I mean, you hope that there is like, I would hope that not everybody that, that was around during that wonderful time in San Francisco that I moved to and felt a part of, I hope they haven't all moved as far as Los Angeles, and I'm pretty sure they haven't. Like, some of them moved to Oakland, some of them moved, like, to Marin County, some of them moved, and they all, like... And some of them are still right here. And some of them are still right here. We still fill club shows, cool, fun shows and when you do with events, people all the time. When, when you do events that remind people of that time, it's crazy the faces that you see that you haven't seen in in years they come out of the woodwork still and and that's that's gratifying and uh yeah that's what you're doing i mean and then again you got to pay the rent too but <laughs> right i don't know it's a challenge you know like i think it's always been like this in the world you know what i mean like like it's tempting to think that like uh these cities being overrun with these people with, with way too much disposable income is, is a new thing, but I think it's a cycle in a much bigger timeline. And, uh, and these are challenges that people in the past have faced and that we have to face now. And I still own a wrestling ring, so who knows? Yeah. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. <laughs> <laughs> Anything can happen. All right. Where can uh, people online go to check out the more information on the band or any other projects that you're uh, involved in? We got Facebooks. Um, the Gimme's have Facebook and Instagram. Fat Records has always got you know upcoming stuff for them, whether it's records or tours. Um, I have Stinky's Alfresco is an Instagram page. 
somebody else is running a stinky's Facebook. My old original partner, he's been keeping it going. I don't even care. It's funny that it still exists. Um, you know, San Francisco, they they keep track of us. They do. Yeah. What? San Francisco keeps track of us. <laughs> and all the craziness. Yeah, it's not over yet. Definitely, definitely. Well, hey, rent rents are plateauing. No, rents are actually declining. Like the bubble is starting to hiss a little bit. There's a hissing sound. <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe people will come back. People are moving back into Manhattan now. You know, like like it's that's cheaper to live in Manhattan now than it is in Brooklyn. To live in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's crazy. Right? That's nuts. <laughs> That's a long way to go before it's, you know, before it's actually affordable. I don't know if it's ever going to get to that point, but, um, I don't know if the tech bubble leaks a little bit, like I I suspect it will, um, then maybe there'll be room for, for other influences and, and collaborators and contributors. That's what we're up to. Definitely. Hoping and praying and then, you know, doing what little we can. Definitely. Well, it's been good talking with uh, you two, Audra and Spike. Uh, you know, thanks for taking the time out to uh, chat with me. It's been a very, very great discussion about things in regards to San Francisco and with uh, the wrestling company, uh, Incredibly Strange Wrestling and its uh, history. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Thank you for taking the time out. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you can edit out all the political bullshit that we had. <laughs> Once I get started, it's hard, to, it's hard to put the court back in. What's the name of that chicken place we went to when we were just in Detroit? The chicken place? The place that the runner took you to. No, it was someplace out on Seven Mile Road that I forget the name of, man, because Miss EV's was closed. Talking to you just made me crave that chicken. Oh, well, if it's on Seven Mile, then it should be straight, man. It should be some good shit. It really is. Man. It was. It was good. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad you got a little taste of Detroit the last time you were here. Yeah, it always gives me mixed feelings, man. Like I, I, I left at one point for and I haven't been back because my grandmother lived there, so I went there on holidays, and then I hadn't gone back until like I want to say like the first time the Swing and Utters or the Gimme Gimme's played out there, and it was this 10 or 15 year period and. Like, it was incredible what had happened to that city, man. Right. And, and it's still like, and then it's, it's really hard for me to reconcile watches and record plants. And I don't want to talk shit about the record plants because it seems obvious that the proprietors have real love for that town. Yeah. And they want to bring an interest back into that town. It's just really hard to reconcile the new cast corridor with all the burnt out fucking buildings when you go out further afield into the city, man. It's a, it's a really weird time for that city. But I think there's more hope for that city because you can move around, man. It's not locked in by water the way San Francisco is. So once they move people out of certain areas, think like just like with the punk scene, things just move laterally, man. Right, definitely. That, and yeah. I think yeah, that could happen here. I hope so. All right. Now let the man go. Yeah, sorry about that, man. <laughs>
<laughs> All right. It's been good uh, chatting with you, too. Uh, you know, good luck with everything, and uh, have a good weekend. Thank you. You, too. You too. All right. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So that was my interview with Spike and Audra. It was super cool to talk with them. There's a lot of great stories, a lot of insight into what was going on during sort of that transformation of San Francisco from this really cool artist community to kind of like what it is now to where, like they said, like the artists really can't think about being artists because they have to have like multiple jobs. And a lot of artists have left to go to other places like Los Angeles or whoever else, maybe even here in Detroit, you know. But what can I say, man? That shit's happening everywhere. And now joining me for the Fresh is the Word discussion segment of the show. And like always, I'm here with my co-host, uh, pro wrestling and MMA connoisseur, Detroit hip-hop artist and proud Marine, V-Styles. What up, though? Yo, what up, though? What's good, Kelly? You all right? Oh, man, I'm good. I'm good. Man. All right, that's what's up. Man, like, what was up? You know, this, this past weekend, uh, UFC... We had uh, Max Holloway beat Jose Aldo and become the 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 champ, you know, undisputed champ now. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was that was uh, we both, you know, we both were pulling for Holloway. Uh, it looked like those first two rounds, uh, Jose Aldo, you know, it looks like he was winning the fight, but um, but Holloway. But uh, Holloway, uh, you know, stayed uh, stayed patient and kind of uh, snapped out of it at the end of that second round. And then that third round, he, like, uh, shoot, and he uh, took it to him. Yeah, I guess that was a part of the plan. Um, it seemed like first it. First two rounds that, you know, Jose's history, he always seems to gas by the third round. So... I looked at that as, okay, well, they got to have some type of um, game plan going on. Uh, and so when he came out in the third round and you started to see him pick up, it was like, okay, yeah. And then after the fight, he kind of said something similar, you know, um, not necessarily taking the rounds off, but he knew that he was going to pick up his motor in the third round and it showed it showed he came out he came out steaming um and in the third round as you know more so than the first two rounds where he was kind of waiting and trying to counter you know the third round looked just like the pettis the, the first round of the pettis fight where he just was coming for it yes so you know i i, I expected everything that went down so i'm not Surprise! I'm not surprised at all, man. Congratulations to the Holloway. Great showing. I'd like to see him uh, put up the belt against uh, Frankie Edgar. That would be pretty dope. Yeah, I think that's what everybody's looking for. Yeah, Holloway said that uh, that at the end of the second round when he started taunting him and Aldo didn't really do anything, he knew that, like, all right, this is the time to really, uh, you know, put you know put the jets on, man, uh, turn it up a notch. That he uh, really wasn't responding, so he's probably already gassing, you know. So, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, he was like, so that third round, he really, you know, 
started taking it to him, man. And yo, but uh, yeah, it's, but it's it's crazy that it, like in the MMA world, man. Like, I I know you know there's a lot of things you can say about Aldo, but you can't you know knock his career, man. He had a hell of a career. And uh, yeah, yeah, the the the, the thing with Aldo now is I'm not going to say that you know he's uh his run was one of the greatest he had a, he had he had a similar run like Fedor right um uh but what taints him is Conor McGregor after that fight he was never the same dude yeah never the same guy after that and uh you know, um, that's like a traumatic loss, uh, though, man. When you go in there and lose in 13 seconds to a knockout, man, that's a traumatic loss. Yeah, he's still in denial now, <laughs> as far as saying that Big John stopped the fight too early. I mean, Big John did everything that he possibly could to allow you to, you know. Try to get away from those strikes that you were receiving. Right, definitely. I mean, I think Big John did a great job, and he gave you the champion. He gave the champion respect to Aldo. Aldo just didn't do. I mean, you can get thumbs up a zillion times, man, but a guy's not gonna sit up here and allow you to keep getting punched in the head without you trying to change position. Right. So, so for. Aldo to come out and say that, it just let me know, man. His brain, like, he, you know, I mean, he's, he's going through it, man. What I, I I don't know if he didn't look at, re-watch the fight, but, you know, I think it's kind of asinine for you to blame uh, Big John uh, on something that he gave you an opportunity to, to correct, you know. So, it is what it is, man, and that is the world of uh, combat sports. Right, you know, you win, you win some, you lose some. And I think with this this Holloway win, it definitely uh, brings a new energy to that division. Uh, that mm-hmm. just because you know Connor was was the champ, but he's you know walked away and doing whatever, and then they gave the belt back to Aldo, and so giving it to Holloway, who's twenty five years old, you know, kind of changes the guard, breathes a, a youthful life to that division. Uh, so, so, you know, and definitely everybody wants to see this um, this match against Frankie Edgar, which probably be a hell of a fight. You know, what's crazy is I forgot that he fought Conor McGregor. I totally forgot that he fought Conor McGregor and lost to him in a three-round fight. Right. You know, um, I think this match would, would give Conor huge problems, you know. Uh, I think he's definitely a different fighter, man, so... Yeah, um, you know, uh, good for Holloway, man. Um, it's unfortunate for Jose, man. Uh, what do you do now? You know, uh, do you retire, go off to the sunset? Or do you get back on your horse and you try to get your belt back? I think it makes no sense for him to go up to, to lightweight. Um, as I see that, at least in my opinion, I think he'll get knocked out. Um, in the heavier weight classes. Right. So, so uh, I mean, he got a lot of decisions that he needs to make real soon about uh, what he wants to do. Definitely, definitely. And um, 
kind of switching topics, but it's still in UFC. And we've talked about this a lot on this podcast. Is with uh, Demetrius Johnson, man, and he's finally coming out and saying the stuff that I know he's been wanting to say for a while now about the UFC and not getting his respect and not the promotion that he truly deserves, man. It's crazy. Yeah, and he and he's he's a dude that like if you got something bad to say about Demetrius Johnson then you don't know shit about MMA. Right. Um, this, this this guy is one of the good guys. Um, I think, uh, I mean, no, 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 no diss to TJ Dillashaw. You know, I like uh, TJ Dillashaw. You know, hell, he, he likes uh, a lot of our shit on Instagram. Me right. And yours. <laughs> right. Um, um, no right. diss to him at all, but. How does he get a title shot when A, you're not a current champion, B, you're not you you never even had a flyweight match before? Right. How does how do you you know it's almost like Dana is is, is you know, just doing, it's like he's doing a favor or he's hooking his boy up or some shit like that. I don't, I don't mean hooking his boy up, but to me that, uh, I, I understand him trying to make a fight, but to give title shots to people that, like, I was in total, you know, I think we both were in total disagreement with the whole GSP thing going for middleweight. It made more sense yeah. for him to fights around Woodley. That was the belt that, that he retired, you know, he left, you know, he left the world's way division. You don't, you don't come right back to fighting and get a title shot in a whole nother weight class. That makes no sense. So I just don't agree with, um, with what they doing to DJ, man. I mean, I know TJ trying to, you know, TJ want to get a belt, you know, good for him. And unfortunately the shit with him and Cody, with the, with the back injury that he's serving, uh, you know, going through right now, you know, it fucked what he had going on, you know. Um, but for UFC to try to force Demetrius Johnson to take that fight instead of the Ray Borg fight, which he had already agreed upon, is it, just some bullshit. You know, it just don't make no it – makes, it makes sense, you know. No, it don't. It don't make no sense. It no, makes it no sense at all. You know, if TJ if TJ was 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 a lightweight champion, I couldn't argue. Right. You know, but cu- currently he's not a champion, no. and you're just gonna allow him, a former champion, to you know bypass all the contenders. You know, just because you want to do this, and then you know to tell him, okay, you'll get paper uh, pay per view points. And to tell him, you know, um, well, if you don't do this, then we'll shut your division down. I'm, I'm, I'm happy DJ came out and said, "Fuck it, do it," because there's principles here, man. And like, it's, it it amazes me a dude that ain't never threw punches in his life is in control of all these fighters trying to be a bully. Right. Somebody is gonna. I mean, and, and I hate to even be like this, man, but somebody is gonna fuck Dana White up. That's gonna happen, right? You know, if he don't, if he don't, you know, 
Like, you can't be talking slick to these dudes. And, yeah, you're the boss, but it's almost it's similar to, you know, I go back to, and I know I'm kind of going off subject a little bit, man, but he's been doing whole-ass shit for years, man. You know, you can go back. You can go back to when he, you know, when he acquired Strike Force. You know, he was saying all type of slick shit on Twitter. You know, uh, calling women names and saying this, that, and the other. And soon my boy said something. He want to terminate his contract. Uh, we talking about King Mo here. But yeah. he want to terminate his contract, man. But yet, you know, he used his platform you know, the way he wants to. It, it's, it's almost like do as I say and not as I do. Well, basically, and it's yeah. just not cool. It's, 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 it's not cool at all. It's not setting a, a good example. And he's going to fire off on the wrong dude one day, and it's going to be trouble. Right. You know, or or, or he going to fire off on the wrong woman. Yeah. He going to fuck around and, and, and Cyborg might catch him. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, right? And of right. course, you don't want to see you don't want to see none of that shit, man. But no, it just it just really makes you wonder, man. It's like, he's poking man, a lot of the bears, know. man. He's poking the bear, man. Shoot, all the time. It wouldn't be saying all the slick shit, man. So good for DJ coming up, standing up, standing up for us, man. He's done what a lot of fighters are afraid to do: speak his fucking mind. It's taking a moment, right? But he finally he finally spoke his mind. And let's see how this plays out. And shit, dude, if like okay, let's say let's say they just take away the flyweight division. Shit. I think uh shit, Bellator would would create a flyweight division. They would sign a gaggle of flyweight fighters just to have uh uh DJ in uh in Bellator. Shit. Fucking um uh one championship would probably lay out the red carpet for DJ, man. You know what I'm saying? Oh man, in a in a heartbeat. In a fucking heartbeat, man. And, so he got options, you know, man. He got options. Yeah, he does. Well, depending on how many fights he still had, has up under his UFC contract, man. But I think they're trying to dick him. Yeah. I just really, I really think they're trying to dick him, and I think, and I, and I also think they don't want him to break that record. Nah. But I do think it's asinine for TJ to call him scared. You know, TJ. Beat the dude twice that knocked you out. Right. <laughs> Remember that? You know, Dotson knocked out TJ Dillashaw. Yeah. And, and, and DJ has beat him twice convincingly. So I don't think scared, being scared has nothing to do with it. I just got, I mean, you got you got to go with, with what's right. You know, I could see you getting a shot if you came down one fight to... You know, if you fought once at flyweight and then get the title shot, I would be okay with that. But to, yeah. to not have any flyweight matches, yeah, can even uh, to, yeah, can TJ even like make weight for a flyweight fight? Like, and if he wins, is he gonna stay at flyweight or go back up? You know, like there's all these like these variables about all these unknowns about what you know if TJ Dillashaw can actually do this or if you will stay you know is he gonna hold up this division if in the chance he beats dj you know what i'm saying there's all these that these all these variables that like really don't need to happen you know yeah i'm with you bro definitely with you 
It's crazy. It's crazy. You crazy. Know, I don't know where Dana, where Dana said to yet, but sounds like he has. Uh, sounds like he got personal relationships with uh, some of these fighters, and sometimes that may lead to a decision a lot of people don't like. Right. You know, because I, cause I, I, I just don't understand how anybody thinks this TJ fight makes sense. <clears throat> it would make sense if it was Cody, because he's a champion. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't make sense that it's TJ, man. So, you know, like I said, let's see how this plays out. Um, I'm still curious how the Angela chick has a still has a job and she's on four in her last four fights in the UFC. What's her name? Angela Angela Big Mouth what? Magana? Yeah, her. Right. Yeah, man. that motherfucker boy, I tell you, boy. Now how does she still have a job? You know, it makes you wonder, man. Right. It makes you fucking wonder. Makes you wonder, man. Shit. <laughs> Just make you wonder. So it's like, wow. How in the fuck does she have a job and dudes that go on two fight losing streaks lose their job? Right. You got dudes you got dudes that go out winning and go to other promotes. She hasn't even man, she hasn't even won a UFC fight yet. Yeah, but yet she has a job like a lot of shit that just don't make sense. That's why Bellator is looking better and better these days. I've I've been saying this shit for years. Right, you know, they, they they eventually the tide is gonna change. You know, it's not good making a lot of enemies, man. You know, Dana's making a lot of enemies right now, and he feel like he can do certain things because he's the boss. And I got a feeling once the new owners, like they don't have the connections that Dana has, so they let Dana you know, be Dana right now. But once they're comfortable enough to run day-to-day operations, like building relationships, I don't see his contract getting renewed. You know, UFC is real close to not being the number one promotion anymore. Right. You know, I mean, they still have the fighters, but eventually these fighters will get tired of the bullshit, and that's what happens. You're tired of the bullshit, and, hey, I want to go somewhere else. So, you know, hey, just get your popcorn, you know. Pay attention (laughs) to what's going on, man. It's going to be, you know, this next year or so is going to be real interesting to see what type of moves will be made on on, on a lot of sides, a lot of stages in MMA, whether it be 1FC, Bellator, UFC, or any other promotion that's out there that's, you know, trying to make moves. But it ain't going to be all about UFC like, like it's been in the past. Right, right, right. Going to be some interesting times. All right, moving into the, uh, to the realms of the WWE, our boy Samoa Joe won the Fatal Five yeah. Day this past weekend at Extreme Rules. Yeah. Joe, Joe has... The best entrance music <laughs> in the game right now. Y'all been saying that shit for a while. When right. I hear his, when I hear his music, I just, I feel like busting the sixteen like all the time. Right, like, man. Right. You know, <laughs> I, 
I would love, I would love to figure out who produced that that track for him, man. It was, you know, it was the guys that, that uh, it was, it's the guys that uh, that do all the uh, um WWE stuff, the CFO guys. Oh really? Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, whoever did that, you can tell they got a little flavor, man. They. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that shit, man. That shit is hard. Man. Yeah, and uh, on Jericho's podcast about a couple months ago, like they talked about the whole process of his entrance music. Um, um, basically, like in a nutshell, like he he first had a different entrance music in NXT and everything it was kind of funkier and everything, and he didn't really like that. Whatever they they basically just asked him for suggestions of stuff that he liked, and then they would base it off of that. So they did this. He gave some suggestions before. They came out with this funky thing. He didn't really like it, but he kept it for a while. But then um, he asked for another. He either he asked or whatever they wanted to do another one. And he basically was like, "I really like uh, the Godzilla theme." So they kind of based it off the Godzilla theme. Oh, and it sounds like that. Yeah. Because that's what I think about. I think about that. I think about Simon Says. Yeah. I think about. Like when I hear them horns, I be like, "Ooh, that sounds like some shit." Yeah, that shit is hard, man. But yeah, um, Joe deserves it. Um, I really hope that uh, we'll. I mean, I hope that we'll see him get the strap. Yeah, we, I don't yeah. personally see it. Um, because they have so much money invested in Brock Lesnar, and even though he's a part-time champion or part-time competitor. He's the universal champion, but I think putting the belt on Samoa Joe, it, it, it makes sense. It makes sense right now. It makes huge sense to, why not put the strap on somebody that's full-time? You know, um, right. it got, it just has to be a different outcome, you know, uh, than, us not seeing fucking Brock Lesnar for months, and then all of a sudden he beats Samoa Joe defending his belt. That's yeah. some bullshit. Man, you know, wrestler fans don't like that. We don't like that shit, man. So right, and that yeah, uh, that, that segment, right. uh, that segment Monday night with uh, Paul Heyman was really dope, man. That, like that was that was wonderful. <laughs> like that's oh, that's like one of the best Samoa Joe performances, man. Like it was intense. You're like. Like, like even the viewing audience almost took a crap in their pants, you know, <laughs> when he got up to him close and started whispering in his ear what he's going to do, you know, like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, that was great. That, that was fantastic. That was, that was super great. I, I, I like how he kept grabbing his face, like, look at me. Look at me when I'm talking to you. This is going to hurt. Yes, yeah. What I'm going to do, I'm going to squeeze your neck, and I want you to tell him what it's going to, what this is going to feel like, and. Yeah, yeah, that was dope. That was dope. I fucked I fuck with some more Joe, man. And it's crazy you know, that, like, and it's crazy that, like, one time, and even he thought so, that he was only going to kind of be in the WWE to be, like, in NXT to sort of help out, like, the up-and-coming guys coming through, kind of be that um that guy to be, make, to, to bring a... That liaison. Yeah, to be that liaison, to be that um sort of guy to keep attention on the NXT mm -hmm. brand. Um, he, he, you know, they never gave him any indication for a while that he was ever going to be brought up to the main roster, you know? And I don't know, maybe they say that to yeah, everybody, man. but, um, it, but it's, 
it's crazy and we all us people who know about Samoa Joe through all the Ring of Honor and TNA years and everything know that this guy is uh is a special talent, you know. And yeah. I'm glad that you know he's been able to uh you know be on the main roster and and it's cool and what I and I think a lot of people maybe don't like this, but I kind of like I like I like it when they go to the main roster and they're not like jammed down our throats, you know. They're yeah. They're sort of given something, but it's still a slow burn. They did that with AJ Styles, even you know. They you know they brought yeah. him up. Yeah. It wasn't a it wasn't jammed down our throats. It was a slow burn. You know he did all these. He did the thing with the Miz. Then he did the thing with Chris Jericho, and then and it's like a few other things. And then he was the champ. You know. Same thing with Samoa Joe. Like they don't have him like just always. He everything that he does that they have him do is very it's very poignant to the moment and to like his character. Yeah. There's really nothing, and I'm glad that they don't like. It, there's not a lot like wasted with him where he's just out there for no reason or whatnot. So I like right. when they do that. I like when they just let it let it be a slow burn. Real shit. They kind of um, they kind of pumping the brakes uh, on, on Finn Balor a little bit too, man. He's been suffering losses on TV like a lot lately, you know. So it's like, hey, okay, I Finn was supposed to be, you know, the next until that injury derailed what they had planned for him. And will he get back on pace? You know, because I don't. Well, they still are jamming certain people down our throats, but right. will will he get back on pace? We don't know. You know, are we going to have to suffer for you know another Raymond, uh, Roman Reigns showing? Are we going to have to keep experiencing uh, his corny lines of his yard and <laughs> you know all this all this other bullshit that we really it's like man come on dude. And to be honest with you, his wrestling has improved uh, yeah. this last year, year and a half, man. So I'm not shitting on Roman Reigns' ability. No, it just says he character just, he just, just like uh, it's just like uh, again. It seems, he seems like a like a fucking mosquito, like one of them irrit- irritating mosquitoes that just won't <laughs> die. But no, the thing was about that fatal five way is that I I really thought out of everybody in that uh that match, um you know Samoa Joe you know was being Samoa Joe, uh bringing the intensity that he always does, but I thought you know when he um that Finn Balor was really exciting in that in that match, much more I enjoyed watching yeah. him more than the other guys you know, uh he had some really great yeah. spots on there and um, I don't know maybe there are ramping maybe they don't know what to do with him right now maybe they're ramping him for kind of a heel turn i don't know man we'll see how about the demon versus bray wyatt and yeah they teased it that one week they teased it that one week and i was like yes let's do this yes you imagine (laughs) could you imagine the demon appearing at SummerSlam against bray wyatt that 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 would would be, be so perfect if they just did all their weird, freaky promos together, like, <laughs> each week until SummerSlam, dude, come on, man. That would be dope, man. Like, 
And they teased it that one week, man, at the end of Raw. And and you ain't seen it since. <laughs> and we're like, yes. Like, everybody was excited. We're like, yeah, that's what we want. Finn Balor, Bray Wyatt. Let's go. Yeah, that that would be super dope. Um, the Hardys losing the WWE belts. The Raw belts. Yeah, dude. What do you think about the, What do you think about that on Sunday? That no, that was okay. That was a fun match because I like the stipulation that you had to actually like both have to leave the uh, both the teammates have to uh, leave the cage. Like that, there is no pinfall or submission. You know, I think cage matches should be that, like always. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Like don't I don't I don't want to see a pinfall in a cage match. I don't want to see a submission in the cage match, unless unless you're bloody and everything like Austin or whatever back in the day. That was fine. But for the most part, yeah. like if if you're doing a cage match, man, I want you I want to see you guys like try to hop the cage or something and do high spots and shit like that. You know. I don't want to see a pinfall yeah. or whatever, like. So I, I enjoyed that, but it was a, it was it was a pretty fun match. We all knew Jeff Hardy was going to do a high spot, which he did. Um, yeah, Jeff Hardy, a bad motherfucker, man. <laughs> yeah, but we'll uh, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. You know, it, just, it, was, it was it was a it was a pretty fun match. Like you know, as a whole, like Extreme Rules wasn't like all that extreme, but I enjoyed it as a whole. You know. Um, I thought it was a pretty fun pay-per-view. Except for one match. The most horrific match of the night <laughs> was Bailey versus Alexa Bliss. Like, okay, I love Alexa Bliss and everything, but that was that a terrible. That was horrible. That was Did a terrible. Did you hear what Dave Meltzer said? Dave Meltzer said that that shit should have been five minutes less. <laughs> We had to suffer through that bullshit. It was it's, it was pretty terrible, man. It just like oh my god. Okay, okay. Uh, on some real shit, like okay, I love Alexa Bliss. You know that King Mo loves uh, Bailey. But and you know what? Right. I would have I would have been I would have been fine if Bailey just snapped and took that kendo stick and beat up Alexa Bliss and won the belt. And I would have been fine with that just yeah. for logic reasons. But the fact that they still had Bailey be this whole goody goody, whatever, she and barely really do anything and barely get over on that match, it was like, oh my God, come on. Like they were building it to like where she is probably I'm like, okay, she'll probably snap or something. Or do something different. I don't know, but they just like totally dropped the ball on that. So, Bailey need to come out with some some new colors. She need a whole new makeover. Um, no, they should have did. No, they should have did for that the ramp up of that that match. They should have brought Tommy Dreamer back and have her have him be his like her mentor or something. And or something. <laughs> it should have been like, like Sandman or Tommy Dreamer or somebody who, who is who knows like knows her way around a kendo stick and been her mentor, you know, for that match, you know, that would have been even better. But shit, man. But that shit was horrible. 
It was, said, man. <laughs> it, it, was, it was horrible, and I also was praying that Nia Jax became champion on, on Raw, and that didn't happen. Somehow, somebody, that little girl, just keep, you know, she's somehow, you know, she's like the champion that somehow gets away with it. I, I, right. I want to see her lose soon. See, that's that's like that was like the champion, like how the Miz would always do it, man. Be like the the, the swarmy champion that always got got away, you know, with being the champion but for so long. With with the Miz, when he wrestles, yeah, it's quality. It's fucking quality. Which so I'm glad he is the, I, the the IC champ again because that that belt was being wasted on Dean Ambrose. It was, man. It was, yeah. Dean Ambrose definitely—he's a transition champion. Even when he was a WWE champion, to me, he never. I mean, it's cool. He, you know, he wind up having the strap, but you know, he doesn't make a good champion to me, man. Mm. Um, I still think they wasted my boy Cesaro's talents. Uh, but at least he is getting a little push being the tag team champion. So I give him a little love on that. Yeah, I enjoy I um, enjoy the uh, Cesaro and uh, and Sheamus tag team, man. They're I I enjoy what they've been doing. Me too, me too. I I enjoy both of them too, man. I, I'm I've always been a Cesaro guy, and you know. Say what you want. Sheamus is a tough ass dude. So yeah, I, I was never really know. a Sheamus fan, but I can I can dig him now, man. I like this. I like this tag team. It's yeah, me too. It's man. a pretty fun me tag too. team. You said what? It's a pretty fun tag team. Yeah, they are. They they definitely they they they're a fun tag team. You know, right. and we got uh the new day back on SmackDown. Okay, um, tonight the. The 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 fashion files new day segment was so hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it was. That shit was funny. That was fantastic, man. I I enjoyed that so much, man. I was like, <laughs> hey, you know you know who most says the realest dudes in the WWE are the Usos. I said, get the fuck out of here, what? man. Okay, I officially think that Rampage knocked some, something loose in his head in that last fight. <laughs> if, if he's saying that right. the Usos are the real... They're the corniest dudes, oh. man. Like, <laughs> Oh, my God, man. Uh, the Uso Penitentiary? Yeah, he... I'm going to take you to the Uso... Welcome to the Uso Penitentiary? What the... Oh, my God. Like the Uso Penitentiary, man. Like they uh, made a joke hey, tonight. It's like Big E, is that your name or your your bra size? I'm like, what? Who writes this crap? <laughs> I ain't gonna look. I ain't gonna front though. When they went down to Elijah's uh, footwear, and they said, "What are those?" I was, I did laugh. My son did that shit to me one time. I had to check him. Right. Like, what you mean? I'm like, hey, like, hey, what a. Get some game about yourself, son. <laughs> that was, that was, uh, that was funny because this shit he did have the Iron Sheiks on. That that definitely was, uh, was funny. <laughs> yeah, well, every time I see the Usos, it's like I gotta, you know, gotta turn the TV off before I look away. See, had they, 
had they just, you know, I used to be hard on them, so tough on them about changing their appearance. Right. Okay, they they changed their fucking appearance. Had they just shut the fuck up and not opened their mouths and just was that tag team that was just, you know, like, wow, okay, yeah, they changed. They got, but then they start talking again. Right, man. And it's like, ooh, dude, it's brutal, man. And one of the dude's wife is, is champion. Yeah. Um, and seeing her mic skills today was just brutal. Like, husband and wife need to go home and, and work on their they <laughs> mic skills because – you know, when she came in the ring and said, you know, I'm not in that match, but it's going to be lit. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> fans fans just looking in disarray like, like what? it's going to be lit. What did she say? Lit? Hit? Shit? What? Lip. Oh. What's that? Yeah. Man? Yeah. Right. It's going to be lit. <laughs> yeah, they're, 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 they're horrible. So now I'm hoping... They hurry up, get the belt off her, put it in the right, put it on the right waist, which is Charlotte. Um, I don't think I can handle uh, uh, the, what's the 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 chick name who do the the horrible moonwalk? What's her name? Oh, Carmella. Carmella. Oh man, she's horrible. She's horrible. I wouldn't mind Jimmy Snooker's uh, daughter getting a little love just for nostalgia reasons. Right. Um, Becky. I'm I love tired Becky. of her. You're tired of her? I love Becky. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think her skill set is nice, but she, like, whenever she talks, it's like, eh. Oh, I love it. You know, uh, I love it. Um, let's see. Who's, who's, <laughs> uh, always. Oh, Natalia, she's, you know, for her to comment, you know, about, uh, about Ric Flair's daughter, and yet you're stealing the best there is, the best there No, you're not. You should never say that ever. And she comes out like, to he, uh, he, Bret Hart's music, you know, and it's <laughs> everything else is like she just took everything from Bret Hart, you know? <laughs> you wear his colors. His music. You, it's like, man, come the fuck on. And... I mean, yeah, you're not. You're the niece. You're Jim Neidhart's daughter. Jim Neidhart wasn't the, wasn't the guy. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. Tag team wise, he, you know, the Anvil, much respect, man. But Bret Hart was the guy. You know, Jim went along for the ride. No diss, but it's just the truth. You know, you go take the best there is. No, that's not what you do. That's not who you are. Be you. Right. Sad but true. Sad but true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. that's about it for this week's podcast. Uh, V-Styles, tell them where uh, they can find you online. You can hit me up at uh, V-Styles forward slash Twitter forward slash V-S-T-Y-L-E-Z also uh, on Instagram and uh, Facebook forward slash V-S-T-Y-L-E-Z. You can hit me up on my official Facebook page, 
uh, at Official V Styles. You'll see a little blue check by my name. That's my real page. You give me a hit, you know, let's chop it up. Let's uh, be respectful. Have a little fun on social media. Word up, word up, word up, man. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Peace. Fresh, 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 fresh is the word.